Okay, ladies, we're going to get started. I'm sorry to interrupt you off your, are you still trying to finish up? I'll wait. And we should have some time at the end tonight for y'all to share prayer requests or other things if you need to. Lord, we once again come before you and ask for your help. Lord, whatever that needs to look like, we just pray that, that you would speak. We are here with our hands and our hearts open, and we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm sure all of you enjoyed, as we did, the freezing cold temperatures that we had here in Arkansas a while back, zero degrees. Um, we live out, and we're all electric, and we have a heat pump. And for those of you that have a heat pump, you know that that electric heat, not only does a heat pump not do great when it gets pretty cold, but electric heat just doesn't feel the same as, say, a gas heat. And so we do have a fireplace um, at our house, and most of the time we just use it for enjoyment. But when it's that cold, we use it to really knock off the chill, and um, it made such a difference. Uh, when that fireplace burned, it put off light and heat, and it just made you feel better, and all of those things. It was a huge blessing. But the reality is you can't have a fire unless there's someone who is previous has previously gone and cut the wood, hauled the wood, split the wood, brought the wood in the house, put it in the fireplace, and laid the fire. And um, that's a lot of work. It's not fun to do that kind of work. Uh, most of the time now we buy our wood because we're old, but there were many days where we went out in the woods and cut it and did the whole ordeal. My husband, we first moved out there, split everything with just his axe or maul or whatever all that stuff was. But um, nevertheless, cutting and stacking and hauling wood is not fun. Okay? And I want you to think about that. Because you can't enjoy the beauty of the light and the heat unless you have done the work. And this is an illustration for what we have been doing in Romans. As we have been walking through the first 11 chapters, we have been looking at deep, foundational, sometimes hard-to-grasp truths about God that requires thinking. Sometimes you might not even come up with an answer. It requires your steadfastness to do your lesson, your steadfastness to come, to put yourself before the Lord. And I would propose that that is cutting and stacking of the wood. That's what it means to really pursue God. That's what it means to pursue him in his word. And some people work very diligently and have a great supply of wood, have a full fireplace. Some people lay their fireplace with a few twigs, okay? But what we do is we lay and stack the wood, and then just like when you light a fire, it takes the fire starter or the match, the Holy Spirit is the one then who sets that wood ablaze. And so that's why Bible study is, yes, the cutting and the stacking, but that's why prayer is really important for you, not only when you're studying the Word, but even afterwards as you think on it. Um, when you when you think on what you've studied, and it doesn't just go out of your head those few moments, and I know it's hard when your day's busy, but when you think on those things and meditate on them, I'm using that in my illustration as seasoning the wood, 
okay? Because if you've ever burned a fire, you know, if you go cut the wood and try to burn it immediately, it's very hard to burn. It takes a lot to get it going. And so not only a lot of times in the church are people unwilling to cut and stack and split the wood, they're also not willing to spend the time to let it season, to meditate and be still before the Lord. And so they may do nothing and show up on Sunday morning and effect, and expect the fire to fall. Now, don't get me wrong. God does interrupt us sometimes, and the fire can fall, and it can set that twig ablaze or that green wood or whatever it is, but that's the exception, I would say. And so if you find your heart not stirred by the things of God, I would propose that it's because you haven't been spending the time cutting and stacking or letting it season by meditating on it. And so um, it's not Pastor Phil's job to do it all. And so that's why I so appreciate those of you here that have been consistently doing your study, those that are listening online that maybe they can't be here, but they are in the Word, and, and this is just one avenue. I know many of you do Bible study many different ways, but I think it's a really good illustration that the more you labor and let things season for the Lord, the greater chance that you're going to have a bigger fire, and you're going to have more light, and you're gonna, your heart is going to be more warmed with the heat that comes from that fire, and it will be a blessing to others around you as well. So I was thinking about that, and as we've been walking uh, through Romans and looking at a lot of doctrinal truth, which a lot of people scoff at, I found this quote that I really liked by C.S. Lewis. And he said this, he said, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books, he's talking about books in general, not just the Bible, but he's saying more helpful in my devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden when they are working their way through a tough bit of theology. And I love that phrase, the heart sings unbidden, because I think that's exactly what Paul is doing tonight when we get on into this section in, in chapter 11. That's where we're going tonight. That is my heart's desire for all of us, that our hearts will sing unbidden as we look at these wonderful, deep, challenging things about who God is, so much greater than us. Now, we ended last week with God's plan for Israel and us, the Gentiles, though they were cut out of the olive tree for unbelief and we were grafted in, it said God, he said, God is able to graft them in again. And so Paul is continuing with that thought in verse 25 of chapter 11. Let's pick up there. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul talks about a mystery. I, I put that on your homework. What is a mystery? In the Bible, a mystery is something that's been concealed and it's unknowable by human reason, but God has now revealed. So often whenever you see that mystery, that's what it's talking about. And what is this mystery here that he's speaking of? It's the divine purpose, God's divine purpose in dealing with both the Jew and the Gentile. Israel was hardened 
For a limited time, salvation comes to the Gentiles, and eventually all Israel will be saved. He said, I'm telling you this mystery so that, what was his reason? The Gentiles would not be conceited that they had been made the people of God in place of the Jews. Now, we know the Jews were conceited because they were God's chosen people. Conceit, uh, I should have made this a truth. It just came to me. Conceit never ends well. That would have been a great truth. <laughs> that just popped into my head. I don't know. <laughs> but it's true. It wasn't good for Israel in that they were taking pride in being God's chosen people and then missed the, the Messiah. And nor is it good for Gentiles to think we're all that and not have a respect of not only who God is, but God's plan for Israel, so that we would not be conceited. The hardening of Israel, and we talked about that last week with their mind and not really being, it was a judicial hardening because they chose to not believe. But it's interesting that he says, until the full number of Gentiles come in. Back in verse 12 of chapter 11, Paul said, but if their transgression, which is their unbelief and their hardening, means riches for the world, the gospel goes out to the rest of the world, the Gentiles, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So you see right there, he's mentioning this fullness, okay? God's plan for Israel. The full number of Gentiles, once that's completed, then there's going to be a fullness for Israel. And so the whole number is what he's talking about of God's elect. Now, it's interesting. It made me think of this when I read that. Till the, there's a hardening until the full number of Gentiles come in. It, remind, it comes in. It reminds me of back in Genesis 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. Um, and it's an unconditional covenant. And he has that vision where he's, he, he cuts the animals and the smoking fire pot. This is Genesis 15 comes between there. One of the things God tells him is that um, his descendants, which ultimately were going to be Israel, were going to be taken captive. And for four generations, this is, this is when they became slaves in Egypt. So God already told Abraham this was going to happen. But what he said is, and then they're going to come back to the land because he said they're going to do that until the, full, the sin of the Amorites is complete. Okay, so God was giving time for these wicked Amorites to repent. And, and there was a moment when it was going to be full, the sin that he tolerated, and he was done. And so it's just interesting for us to think of the sovereignty of God, whether it's in salvation or judgment, that only known in the mind of God, but there will be a time and a limited time when that's going to happen. There's actually a full number of Gentiles. He is sovereign over even numbers, y'all, is the point. And he has a plan for that, and he can tell us that plan ahead of time, whether it's judgment, salvation, or whatever it is. So it just reminded me of that, um, till the sin of the Amorites was complete, I think is the way it was worded in there, the full measure or whatever. So, once again, we see the sovereignty of God ruling and reigning, accomplishing his purposes. And then he says in verse 26, let's see, where am I here? And so, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there on 26. 
So all Israel, this doesn't necessarily mean that every single Jew that ever lived and has will live at the end time is going to be saved. Most commentators think that it's going to be just a large part of the nation, okay? It's going to be much bigger than even it was in the first century, okay? After the judicial hardening, when the full number of Gentiles, this is going to happen. Now, Zion... Um, well, and, and he quotes in that, in that passage, he quotes from Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, and Jeremiah 31. Those are like Paul, he took a piece here, a piece here, a piece here, and put it together. And we've seen over and over, he gives a truth, and then he substantiates it and upholds it with the Old Testament. I asked you to look up Zion. It's a geographical location, sometimes Jerusalem, sometimes the entire land of Israel. It's also a symbol of God's presence. God dwells in Zion. It's also a symbol of God's kingdom. It can be used in different ways. The deliverer who's going to come, whether this means the first and or the second coming, is Jesus Christ. I figure most of y'all probably got that one. Now, um, one thing that came up that I want to make a point here is that he says he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. All right, so Isaac had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob was the chosen line. We saw that earlier, and at one point after Jacob had been exiled, after he cheated Esau, he came back, and he has this encounter with God, and God changes his name to Israel, and so Jacob and Israel are the same. And the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so a lot of times in prophecy or in the Old Testament, you'll see different names that refer to the nation of Israel. Sometimes the entire nation, sometimes the northern kingdom, like Ephraim would refer to the northern kingdom. So there are different names of individuals that are named to represent the nation. So that can be a little confusing. So I just wanted to make that point. That's what's happening here. But what's interesting about Paul's interpretation of this, about how all of Israel will be saved, is it gives us insight into other promises in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to read all these. I'm going to give you a synopsis, but you might want to write these down. There's a text in Jeremiah 16, 14 through 16, where God makes a prophecy that Israel is going to return to the homeland. Okay? That's one thing. Jeremiah 32, 36 through 40 is where he promises that they're going to serve God with singleness of heart, okay? That's another thing that intimates that there's going to be a huge returning of Israel to the Lord at some point. Hosea 1, 10 and Hosea 2, 21 through 23. This is where... Hosea is an example. A lot of prophets had to live out the prophecy, and he has these, these children with Gomer, the whore, the prostitute, not really prostitute, just a whore because she was unfaithful. And so the children that he has with her are named according to prophecy of Israel, scattered, not my people, not loved, but then he says in that place they will be called loved by the Lord. So that's going to be restored. That's another, in, you know, indication that there's going to be a restoration. And then, did 
that was Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, and then also Hosea chapter 2, 21 through 23. That's specifically the naming of the children, which was symbolic. Then in Zechariah chapters 12, 12 through 14, I guess that's chapters 12 through 14. I don't know. I have 12 through 14. This is a wrap-up of all history, and this is where it talks about how they're going to look on the one they have pierced and mourn, talking about Israel. They're going to see Jesus for who he was, and they're going to grieve over their unbelief. And it's also where the Lord is going to descend on the Mount of Olives, and it talks about all the Jews becoming holy. Okay? So go back and read those, and all of those inspire some kind of restoration that we have not seen. So they are connected with what Paul is saying, that the Jews eventually are going to be restored in, in a great group in some way. Now, we don't know all the details of that, prophecies like that, but it's important for us to keep that in mind. He talks about his covenant with them in different places where he's going to take away their sins. That's only done in Jesus. And so, therefore, even though all Israel be saved, they still come the same way, through belief. There are one people of God, and it's through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice, both for the Jew and the Gentile. It's just a matter of when it happens, but the way is the same. And so, as Paul sums up Romans 11, he wants us to feel appropriately small in the presence of a sovereign God. So he goes on in verse 28, and he says, as far as the gospel, he's talking about Israel, as far as the gospel's concerned, they're enemies on your account because they're not believing. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. God made covenants with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And they are going to be loved as a people because what it says in verse 29 for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That is a powerful verse. Here, it's in the context of Israel. But it didn't qualify, did it? It didn't say God's gifts and call to Israel are irrevocable. God's gifts and calls are irrevocable. That's powerful for us, y'all. Because he has called us. He has gifted us with his son, his spirit. Nothing can change that because God is unchanging. His plans for Israel are unchanging. And so I want to take just a second here, and I want us to think about the nation of Israel. Um, you know, and before I, I go into that, I want to say this. There, there are people in the church through time and still today that believe in what's called a replacement theology. And we've already seen how we have been grafted in. And we are heirs of many promises, and we have great promises just as believers. But replacement theology says that, you know, Israel didn't believe, so they've been set aside, and all the promises to Israel are now for the church, which, in part, that is true. But what do you do with what Paul is just teaching us about so all Israel will be saved and how their riches are for the world when they come to belief? I can't tell you how all that's going to work out, but in my opinion, this tells me that God still has a plan for no other reason because of the promises he made to the patriarchs. So in some ways, yes, we are in, we are in the vine and we are enjoying those promises now, 
But nevertheless, in some way, I do believe God still has a plan for Israel, just from the passages that we're talking about. But think about Israel. So Israel has survived 4,000 years as a distinct people. It's striking. And let me tell you why. Well, not even before A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed and they were, they were scattered by the Romans, before that you had the, the Syrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Some came back, some didn't. That, that began the scattering. And this went on, and she was scattered until 19, I think the 47, 48, depending on when the decree went out and when they actually moved back in. Okay, 19 centuries, y'all. No homeland spread among the nations of the earth, 19 centuries. And yet, she kept her language, her culture, eventually was restored to her land after World War II. Israel population is two-tenths of one percent of the world. Two-tenths of one percent of the world. And yet, let's think about, is not Israel always the center of what's on the world scene. Political, conflict, she's hated. She's so hated. We're seeing it in a big way right now, are we not? From a war that came about, even before the war, still hated. Do you ever wonder why? Why do people hate Israel so much? My personal view is there's something much bigger in the heavenlies going on between Satan and God and God's promises in Israel that makes sense with such a small nation, nor does it make sense that they have been restored to their homeland and are actually a nation again. Now, don't get me wrong. They are a secular nation. Not only are they not Christians, they, for the most part, most of them don't even live up to Judaism like it is in Scripture. However, we're not talking about Israel. We're talking about God in this passage, and what he chooses to do. So keep that in mind. So I just think that's interesting. I read one time that if you want to prove the Bible is true, look at Israel, because it makes no sense. It makes no sense, which I think is interesting. But anyway, so Paul again summarizes God's plan. But I want you to note the emphasis in 30 to 32 that he makes on both disobedience and mercy. So he says, oh, by the way, let me say this. If God's gifts and calls are irrevocable to Israel, you know what that says to us? Everything that he's promised to us is also irrevocable. So once again, that's part of the argument that Paul's making in 9 through 11. Did the word of God fall? No. So there's not only is he dealing with Israel, but there's great power and comfort for us as believers as well. So let's go back to 28, I mean 30. You who were at, he's talking to the Gentiles, you, no, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy, there's the disobedience and the mercy, as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Mercy is used four times. Disobedience is used four times in these verses. 
It's only in the context of disobedience that mercy has any relevance. If there's no disobedience, why is there a need for mercy, y'all? He's making that point. We've all been in the disobedience, and God is using that to display his mercy because revealing his glory, revealing his perfections, revealing his character is what he is about. So here's a truth, and it's kind of long, so I'll read it a few times. Unless you realize the enormity of your disobedience and sin, unless you realize the enormity of your disobedience and sin, you will not appreciate the greatness of God's mercy. Unless you realize the enormity of your disobedience and sin, you will not appreciate the greatness of God's mercy. The right of God to show mercy to whom he will cannot be challenged. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. However, here's another truth. Mercy cannot be compelled, but we can appeal to mercy. Mercy cannot be compelled. We can't make God have mercy, but we can appeal to it. We can ask for it. We can ask for it for other people. We can, we can ask for it because it's God's character. We can cry out for mercy. Mercy cannot be compelled, but we can appeal to mercy. So I want to ask you, have you found mercy from God? And if you have found mercy from God, what is your response? What is your response to that mercy? We're about to see Paul's response. Paul's response to this amazing mercy, this mercy that we have seen as we have stacked the wood of Romans 1 through 11, is that he has the Spirit of God set his heart aflame with praise and worship. And so he is about to set forth the incomprehensible God and the greatness of God. And I want to say this. Here's another truth. The greatness of God, everything we've seen in 1 through 11, is supremely relevant. It's supremely relevant. The greatness of God Everything we've seen in 1 through 11 is supremely relevant, and I'm going to tell you why. To see it, to know it, to meditate on it, to be moved by it. Let's think about our culture. Let's think about the topics Pastor Phil's been teaching on that we've been talking about. We've been talking about gambling. We've been talking about sex outside of marriage, alcohol. I forgot what else he's going to cover. Does anybody know what he's covering this week? Okay. Think about those issues. We're, we're trying to look at them biblically, but as you've noticed when he's, he's talked about those, he's talked about people that have gotten off God's path, that this is a problem, this is a big deal for them, this is an issue, okay? Why? Why are these issues along with many others in our culture? And this is a great quote from John Piper, and I love this, and I think it's so relevant, and it helps us know why Seeing the greatness of God is so relevant, and it's long, so just listen, and if anybody wants a copy, I can make it. He says, one reason that we are awash 
in all of this in our culture. And I would say, especially in our culture with sexuality, everything is defined by sexuality. We're, we're sexually obsessed. But nevertheless, there's other issues as well. One reason we're awash of all of this in our culture and in our own lives and why we are intellectually, the reason is we are intellectually and emotionally disconnected from infinite soul-staggering grandeur. That's what we find in God. We're disconnected from that. We're drowning in a sea of the trivial. The human heart was made to be staggered with terrifyingly joyous dread and peace by an infinitely untouchable yet embracing God. Isn't that what we've seen in the paradox of who God is? It's inevitable that a heart made for this, but drowning in the trivial, would reach out for whatever buzz it can get. The deepest cure to our pitiful addictions is to be staggered by infinite holiness, wrath, justice, truth, and the mercy of an unchanging sovereign God. We are meant to be staggered by that, y'all. And my prayer for myself and for y'all is that is what's happening as we're walking through Romans. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said, the heart sings unbidden. What a beautiful thing when we are staggered by the greatness of our God. And so Paul begins to express his heart singing unbidden, and I'm going to read 33 through 36, and then we're going to talk about it. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is Paul's response to not only the greatness we're talking about with Israel and the Gentiles, but everything that we have seen in Romans. And so he starts off. Just the fact that he starts like, oh, just oh, y'all says a lot. Oh, the depths. We can never get to the bottom of who he is and his greatness. Now, my translation says the depths of the riches and wisdom, but there's different views on, is it the depths of the riches and wisdom or is it the, the, the riches and the wisdom um, and the depths separately? Okay, the knowledge, excuse me. Is it the riches separate, like the depth of the riches is one thing, the wisdom, and the knowledge, like three separate things we're looking at? Or does riches modify wisdom and knowledge? There's different views on that because of how it's written in the original. But either way you want to look at it, you can see that we're talking about God being beyond us. Okay? He has got in inexhaustible riches, which one writer said, if you can make anything out of nothing, how much riches is that? Not just what he already has that he's made. He can make anything out of nothing. I mean, that's about as rich as you could get, right? So riches are inexhaustible. 
His wisdom and his knowledge are inexhaustible. The depths are so great, we cannot get all the way to the depths, okay? Um, wisdom, well, wisdom is how, knowledge are the facts that you know things. Wisdom is how you use them. So let's take a look where we talk about the wisdom of God, and let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20 through 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 24. I'm going to start in 18. Let's back up to 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. We're talking about the wisdom of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God's wisdom is so beyond us and we see his wisdom demonstrated in Christ. So, he knows all things. That's what omniscient means. He has all knowledge. And he is wise in all things. So, that should do three things for us. Knowing the depths of all this with God, it should disturb us because he knows our hearts. Just because you haven't acted on it doesn't mean he doesn't know it. It should comfort us because he knows our hearts and he loves us. Okay? He knows our desires. Even if we don't fulfill it perfectly, if our desire is to know and love him, he knows that, and it should humble us. That's what it should do for us. His judgments are unsearchable. Now, judgments are his determinations, his decrees, what he purposes to do, but his paths are the way he gets there. Okay, so God says, what I purpose in my heart, I will accomplish. No one can thwart it, okay? But the path he takes is beyond tracing out. We can't necessarily know the path. We know the promises, we know the goal, but his paths are untraceable. How he accomplishes his decrees. Verse 34 says, who has known the mind of the Lord? And what's the answer? No one, not fully anyway especially when we compare ourselves to us. Who has been his counselor? Who's been God's counselor? Does God go to us for counsel? No. However, one writer said this. Counsel is the one thing sinners presume most often to give God. Counsel is the one thing sinners most often presume to give to God. Okay? So here's your truth. Do not advise God. Trust him. Do not advise God, trust him. He has all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. His determinations are going to happen. You may not understand the paths because they're beyond tracing, 
but you can trust him. Can't tell you how many times I've prayed that prayer. God, I have no idea what you're doing, but I trust you. When I've been really confused and stressed out. Or not knowing how things were going to turn out. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God owns everything. So no one has ever given to God. Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands. Even your service, ladies. He doesn't have to repay you for that. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Everything is from God. So, in verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 40. Okay, look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And then in verse 35, he quotes Job 41. And I want to read you portions of this. So go to Isaiah 40. It's one of my favorite sections in scripture. I love the book of Isaiah so much. On my bucket list one day, I want to write a study on Isaiah, but I'm probably going to have to be retired before I can do that. But go to Isaiah 40. And this, this is a wonderful um, chapter to meditate on. We're going to pick it up at the end of verse 9 because the end of verse 9 says, well, he's talking about lift up your eyes, and he says, here is your God. So I love this passage because just like um, Paul is getting a vision of God, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his path beyond tracing out, who's known the mind of the Lord. He's, taught, he's meditating on God. Look what Isaiah says, and we're going to do a couple things here. So we're going to do 10 through 17. He says, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd, and he gathers the lambs in his arms, which I love the two arms of God. You got power on one hand, and you got him holding the lambs on the other. Isn't that our God, ladies? He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? You see that quote? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or who taught him the right way? Who is it that has taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? That's really what Paul is alluding to. But look at his picture of people. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket, and they were regarded as dust on the scale, and he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. They were known for their wood, their trees, nor animals enough for burnt offering. Before him, all the nations are as nothing, and they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. And it goes on. So the comparison there is who we are, not that we're, we're not important, but in compared to God, we are nothing. That is really important for us because in our fallenness and in our flesh, we have a tendency to want everything to be about us. 
everything we view from our perspective, how it affects us, what we want, how we see it, on and on it goes. But we end in 36 with the paradigm shift. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him alone be the glory forever. It gives us a Christian worldview. This verse gives us a Christian worldview. It's one of the reasons my, one of my life verses. When we come to Christ, everything shifts from revolving around us to everything revolving around God. Creation, from him, through him, to him. He's going to make it all new one day. The gospel, salvation, from him, through him, Jesus Christ, to him for his glory. We see it both places. To him alone be the glory. God is all and man is nothing compared to him. Being humbled in the presence of the God alone who is great will bring comfort and restoration to your soul. Being humbled in the presence of the God who alone is great will bring comfort and restoration to your soul. It's intensely practical to magnify the Lord and minimize your view of yourself. That's a huge part of why you need to be in the Word of God and meditating on who God is. And looking at Scripture, not what does God want me to do? How is this going to comfort me? What does he have for me? And we have a tendency to do that. But to look at the Word of God to see God, and the byproduct will be all those things that you need. You look at Scripture to see God. That's the key. Learn the lesson that the Lord, that God is God, and I am not. Bottom line, God is God and I'm not. Now, I hope you stayed in Isaiah 40 because I want to take you to the end of that verse and I want to show you what I'm talking about. So he spends this entire chapter giving this beautiful litany of who God is and then he gets down to 28 and you're going to be familiar with these verses but it's really important that you see them in light of all that we're talking about and what this whole chapter is about which is a vision of God. And he says in Isaiah 40, 28 to the end, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord, that's Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. There it is. We can't get to the depth of it. He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, that can be wait on the Lord, that can be linger before the Lord, meditate on the Lord, can be any of those. What happens when you do that? You renew your strength, you soar on wings like eagles, you run and do not grow weary, you walk and you are not faint. Those who hope in the Lord that linger before him have this amazing blessing that comes. Psalm 103.5 says, speaking of God, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. One writer said this, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And I don't, I don't think it's insignificant that the whole point of everything that we have on our computers and 
Everything is all about attention. They are paying for our attention. Advertisers, everything, they monetize your attention. Your, your, everything's designed to get your attention back, your attention back. And I think that's interesting to think of that in light of our culture and what they're doing to try to grab your attention and market it. Attention is the beginning of devotion. So in light of that, in light of what we've talked about as far as seasoning our wood, looking to God, meditating on who he is, knowing that those who wait on the Lord, hope in the Lord, linger before the Lord, which is meditating, are going to renew their strength. That is the good thing. The thing that we want, that we need to press on, is found in his presence, turning our face to him and setting our gaze upon him. So may we commit this week to linger before the Lord, let the word of the truths that we've been learning to season and just soak our souls in all the many perfections, many that we can't fully understand because, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. That's all we can say. How many times have you thought that? Oh, the depth. But that doesn't mean that our hearts can't sing unbidden. 